0: Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. And some of you, I'm sure, have looked in your order of worship and noticed that we are tackling Nehemiah chapter 7, and you are terrified. You didn't stretch before we decided to take on 73 verses, and some of you are just curious if you're in the splash zone. We will not read the entirety of the chapter, we will look at the first six verses, and then we will skip to the very end. And we will concentrate our time on this census. Let's look at God's Word together. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then picking up in verse 66, The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minus of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work. 20,000 derricks of gold, and 2,200 minus of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minus of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Let us pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank You for Your Word, Your holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. And as we direct our attention to it, we pray, O God, that You would help us. Help us that we might know You more clearly, that we might follow You more nearly, and that we might love You more dearly. And all for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen. Maybe seated. There's a little book called Why Cities Matter. It's written by two professing Christians, and what they're arguing in the book is well, the history of the world, how there's been a shift from rural to urbanization, and that it's not unique to modern times that you can find that truth in the Bible that there was a movement in which people moved into the city, and they make much of cities, and their rationale for that is because, well, cities are important. They say cities shape the world. What happens in the city doesn't stay in the city for long. It tends to influence. It It grows outside of the city. You, you see political and economical and, and even spiritual developments. And so they have a definition of, well, what is a city? They say cities emerge when people choose to live, work, and play in close proximity. They even quote someone else who says that cities are the physical absence of space between people. Simply stated, cities are people. And that's what we want to understand this morning when we look into Nehemiah chapter 7. We learned last week, 52 days have gone and they have built or rebuilt the wall. And what you might expect at the completion of such a task is, well, a grand celebration. We should be excited. There should be a block party. We've gotten our COE and, and we should enjoy ourselves. And instead, what we read is a census. This is not written by Nehemiah. It's a, well, it's a 90-year-old census. Ezra wrote it. And so let me kind of make one housekeeping point for just a moment. If you're any bit of a scholar in your Bibles and you were to open it to Ezra chapter 2, you would see the similar list. But there are some differences. And you understand we live in a world that, well, when there are differences in the Bible, they try to destroy it. They try to destroy the Bible. They try to discredit it. If this is meant to be the same list, how can we trust the Bible? The Bible's wrong. It's, it's not inerrant. It has errors. It's not infallible. It, it clearly has failed. You, you understand that this is foolish talk. Why is this foolish talk? Because simply stated, what you're holding in your hand, we aren't saying is inerrant. We're not saying the Bible in which you hold in your hand is infallible. What we are saying is the original. We call them the autographs. What you have is a copy, and you already knew there were mistakes. You have gotten a Bible, and you saw that a page was missing, or a verse is missing, punctuation mistakes. You knew that there was errors and mistakes in your Bible. But even with those, you know that there are no doctrinal errors in which you hold in your lap. Is that what you should say to them? no, you should be a little bit even more logical and say, why are the lists different? Because it's a 90-year-old list. And what happens in 90 years? We call it life. Babies are born. People die. Some people might have even had to go back to Persia to care for aging parents Heck, some people might have forgotten to mail in their ballot or show up for picture day. There's a host of reasons, logical and plausible, as to why these lists are different. But you and I want to ask a different question. Why is this list being repeated again? We've already read it in Ezra chapter 2. So what would be the significance of getting another recording of this list? Well, I want to do so with three points. We want to look at repopulate, the repopulation of the city. And then we want to look at the renewed vision. And lastly, we want to look at a reminded truth, a reminded truth. We open up in chapter 7. You get these first four verses that are kind of finishing out what we read in chapter 62. But read with me what you see in verse 4. The city was wide and large. But the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. The walls finished. The gates are up. The city is ready. And yet we have no people. In fact, if you fast forwarded to Nehemiah chapter 11, what you would find out is at least 90% of the people lived outside the walls. Nehemiah has rallied the troops. They they have come in. They have built the wall. Perhaps they set up temporary housing, tents or something of that nature. They finish and what do they do? Well, they go home. That's what you and I would have done. The the work is finished. And so we go home. But it seems so anticlimactic, doesn't it? Nehemiah has said, this is an important city. What we're doing is a, Big deal. And so at the conclusion of these walls, these gates, shouldn't we see something of explosion, of, of, of goodness, of glory, of great celebration instead of a census? Actually, there's an Old Testament scholar, a 20th century theologian. Did you know he calls Nehemiah chapter 7 the climax of the Old Testament? That's what you were thinking when you heard this census. Climax. Climax. What you were expecting was just roll call, weren't you? No, why is he saying that this is so climactic? What he is arguing is that the first six chapters are, it's preparation for something. And normally, when we look at a climax, we're looking at something to happen. And what he is saying is, well, the reason it's climactic is because something doesn't happen. There's something missing. And what is it that's missing? People. People are missing. We have a city. We have walls. We have a temple. We're ready. But what happens is, well, there's no people. And so what he's arguing is that this is the climax. And why? Because our God wants people. He wants a people for himself. Did you know that? Do you you believe that? Is that how you view God? that God has a purpose for rebuilding a city because He wants to redeem people. He wants to call them by name, as Isaiah would tell us in chapter 43. Meditate on that for a second, that God doesn't need you, but He wants you. He doesn't have to have you, but He's made you for Himself. It's a desire And make no mistake that that is what the census is telling you. Look down at verses 7 to 25. I promise I won't try to pronounce all of these names. But what is it that you're looking at in these few verses? You're looking at the names of the sons of people. You're looking at names, the the groups of people. It's just regular citizens. You're going to keep going, and then you're going to find out, well, there are priests. And the priests that you read about in verse 39, well, That's the Aaronic priesthood. Those are the priests that David had set apart in his kingdom. He had set apart 24, and there are are four left. And then you're going to go down a little further into verse 43, and you're going to see the Levites. Yes, those are priests too. You You could think of them as, well, priestly servants. They serve the other priests. We have singers, those who lead in worship, gatekeepers, those who provide protection in the temple, and even in the city. And then, in verse 57, we read the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sorporeth, and the sons of Peridah. Now, you reading that, you, you just thought that that might have sounded a little funny. But what you're reading here is, those names aren't Jewish those aren't Jews, those are Gentiles. Those are people who have been engrafted into the people of God, who have been brought into this city. And God is rebuilding a city and redeeming a people and he's doing it with ordinary folks. He's brought both Jew and Gentile. This list is telling us something. People matter to God. Now, why am I emphasizing that? Because you and I talk a lot about what we call total depravity, but what we need to understand is what that doesn't mean and what the Bible is not saying. When we talk about total depravity, what we are not saying is that, well, what's wrong with us is that we're humans. No, human and, or mankind is not the problem. Mankind was created good. We fell into sin and now we have moral and ethical problems, but it's not your humanity. God's not trying to remake a group of people into an entirely different species. He wants people. So it's not a, it's not a creation problem. It's an ethical problem. It's a moral problem because God wants people. He wants these people. He wants you. If you put your faith in Christ... That's him reminding you, I'm rebuilding my city. I want a people for myself. And so what you're getting in verse 4, it's the desire of God. It's a repopulation of Jerusalem, the city of God, because he wants a people for himself and he has made a promise and he is beginning to fulfill that even from a people who had been exiled. There's a repopulation of city. There's also a renewed vision. Look in verse 5. Nehemiah says, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. What is Nehemiah saying? He's saying that God has put something into his heart, that he needs to assemble a group of People, and before we go far, we need to address something. What is Nehemiah saying? What is he not saying? He is certainly not saying every desire that you have, every intuition that you have was put there by God. That was the lack of sleep you had last night. What is he saying? Nehemiah is not saying, well, you get to say, God told me. Why do we read these words from Nehemiah? My God. Do you see the possessiveness? Do you see the pronouns? That should stop you because you're in the Old Testament. The only people who used those kind of possessive pronouns of God were those who understood His covenant relationship with them. The Lord is my shepherd. O God, my God, earnestly I seek you. Paul picks up on that language, doesn't he, in the New Testament. The Lord, what? Loved me. And he gave himself for me. What Nehemiah is telling you is there's covenantal relationship, covenantal promise. This is not the modern day language. God told me. No, he did not. We need to be clear. God has not told you anything that's not in the Bible. He hasn't given you a new word. He hasn't given you different words. He hasn't given you a special or more words. What he gave you is the word. And so we need to understand when we talk about life and God speaking to us, he speaks every moment you open your Bible. He speaks to you every single time. But that's where he speaks. Not just out and about. He speaks from his word. That's where the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is. And so Nehemiah understands that. He lives in the presence and on the promises of God. He would have known some of his Old Testament. What would he have known? There's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Or could he have had in mind Jeremiah's prophecy? In chapter 31, you you get the picture and proclamation of the new covenant. And after that, what does Jeremiah tell you? It's not just here is the new covenant. He's going to tell you how it's fulfilled and how is it fulfilled. It's the repopulation of the city. Now, I'm not saying to you this morning that Nehemiah thought of the rebuilding of this wall as that is the entire fulfillment of those prophecies. No, that that shows itself in Revelation chapter 22. When there won't be a small city, there won't be a small feast, there won't be a small group, you will get the heavenly host of all of God's redeemed. He knows that, but could he not have a gospel-motivated vision that says, but God is doing something today. This city is being rebuilt, and there is a people of his own here. He's got a gospel motivation for why he is doing what he's doing. He's not looking to start a city planning firm. He doesn't think the housing market is about to blow up, so let's get in here. He's not worried about overpopulation. What he's worried about is the glory of God being demonstrated through the lives of his people. And so he has a vision, a renewed vision that says we need to rebuild this city. What are you thinking about right now? We live in a city. We live in Smyrna, Georgia. We live close to a major city, in case you don't think Smyrna's major. Atlanta. Have you considered a vision for this city? What do you think about this place? Some of you have lived here for a very long time. Some of you have told me you remember this city when Cobb Parkway, 41. There was just a two-lane road. I, I don't have categories for that. You remember what it's like. But what has God been doing? It's growing. You've got the battery that has come to Cobb County. You've got the elevator company. Did you know about this elevator company, Thyssen and Krupp? It's this strange building that's way above everything else in Cobb County. But did you know they're moving their headquarters here? And did you know what that meant was there were only, at the moment, according to the news, 300 families that lived close by. 600 were coming outside of the state and moving here. Or maybe you read during the massive COVID crisis that the AJC ran an article and they said, the New York City is bleeding. And what they were talking about is the mass exodus of people leaving the city. And where were they coming? Atlanta. Atlanta. Guys, we live in a city. Do you have a vision with promise that says we want to make much of our city because God has put us here and he's got a work to be done? Are we a church like that? Do we think about this building like that? Do we think about our land like that? Do you think about your neighborhoods like that? Do you think about your work like that? Nehemiah is giving us a picture of what it looks like to have a renewed vision for who we are and where we are. God is doing a work. And have you begun to ask Him to increase it and to accomplish it at Smyrna Presbyterian Church through us, that we would be a hospitable church, that we would be a church of truth, that we would be a church of grace? Nehemiah is a great picture of that a renewed vision. We are a diverse group with diverse experiences. And so my encouragement to you this morning, do you have a promise from the Word of God that says we will build this city because we care about your glory and we want to see it demonstrated in every place we go? We have a repopulated city renewed vision. And then lastly, we have a reminded truth. There are several points. I'm sure you were thinking this when you read this. Oh, this is a great truth that I'm being reminded of. Nehemiah is saying there are several points that you and I need to be confronted with on truth. We look over the census. What does the census tell us? Well, there's something powerful about the past and the present and the future. Paul tells us that, doesn't he? And 1 Corinthians, he's telling the church at Corinth, look, things were written down for you. Why? So that you might not repeat what was wrong. Paul's giving them a context of negative, but Nehemiah is telling you there's been something great that has happened. There's something else that is going to happen, and we can consider this truth that God has. Now we have to ask ourselves that question. Who are these people? How did they get to this list? What does that mean? One man said that this is the, uh, well, it's the Hebrews 11 of the Old Testament. Here are the great cloud of witnesses. It's It's an Old Testament veterans day. It's the people who went before you, who gave of their time, their talent, their treasures, their life, that you could come back, that you could know God, that you could worship, that you could make much of God. And so we ask, well, what's so special about them? Are these some great list of heroes? They've done heroic things. It's a challenging question. Pastor Joel, he he loves to comment on this kind of stuff. He leaves all the difficult ones for me. I would agree with him on that. I was looking, I promise, I was looking all over the place. Who comments on Nehemiah chapter 7? And you would be surprised that nobody does. (laughs) Unless they're commentaries. I had to look in, and I probably looked at about 10 different systematic theologies. Just for somebody to reference this list. Only one does. Do you know where he references them? It's in his chapter when he's talking about Jesus. And he says that Jesus is the Old Testament Testament mediator. And he's looking for names that show up that represent Jesus. Joshua, Jeshua. You can find it in this list. But he references it one more spot. Do you know where he puts it? He puts it in the place of what we would call special revelation. He puts it in the place in which God is saving a people that he has given a word to his people to bring them to salvation. Isn't that incredible? This is the list that God has set aside for himself. He wants to work in their life. He wants to save them. And now they're telling a new group of people, another generation, let me show you who I have saved and let me show you what I'm going to do. What a powerful encouragement. What a powerful reminder of truth that God Saves. There's no celebrities on this list. This is not Israel's all-star team. You can't find them anywhere else in the Bible. And so why is it here? Have you ever gone to a, a Titanic exhibit? Or perhaps you've been to the Smithsonian. You've done the Holocaust Museum. You get a list of names. Initially, you recognize them to be unimportant. I don't know who this person is. Don't know anything about them. They give you a little card, don't they? And just for a few moments, you you almost get to live the life of someone else. You you see what it was like for them to be on this boat or live during the Holocaust. And at the end, you you find the conclusion of their life. And what does that do for you? What brings to center focus how important their life was? That's what we get here with this census. What is this meant to do? It's a, well, it's a list of grace. That's what it is. We ask the question, are there something, is there something special about them? Did they do something to help them get on the list? Who punched their ticket? It's a question of citizenship. How do you get to be a citizen in Jerusalem out of exile? It's a question David asked, doesn't he? Isn't that what David is asking in Psalm 15? What does he say? Who will sojourn in your tent, O God? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then verses 2 to 5, he answers that question. And you're reading it closely, and what are you saying to yourself? That's not me. I don't don't meet those standards. I'm I'm not holy. I wouldn't make the list, there wouldn't be enough ballots. For me, how could God require something like that perfection knowing that the people are imperfect, that they are fallen, that they are depraved? And it's because this list screams grace. They weren't selected because they were special in and of themselves, they were selected because God loved them and He worked in them and brought them to himself. It's the same for you and me. It's not a census. But there's another book, isn't it? The book of life. And there are names written in it. Oh, Lord willing, that that would be true for you. That your name is in that book. You know that you did not earn it. You were saved by grace. That according to Psalm 15, who gets to go up the mountain? And the answer is nobody. Nobody. But the reason why you and I can go up the mountain and we can meet with God and we can worship God is because Christ went up the mountain. And what he did not meet was an opportunity for worship. What he met was wrath. He took on the punishment that you and I deserve. He took the wrath of God that you might be welcomed into the presence of God to worship. It's called a list, a book of grace. And it's an issue of citizenship. And you and I are asking the question well then how does one become a citizen? It's not unlike what we do in our own country. How does one become a citizen? You're born of a citizen. I understand we have some birthright stuff. That's not the context. You're born of a citizen. And then you and I actually have to confront ourselves, don't we? None of us were You could say, I grew up in a Christian home. I have godly parents who love me, who told me the gospel, who reminded me of my baptism. And that is a good thing. That is a blessing from God, but it does not mean you were born a citizen. There was only one to be born a citizen. And his name is Jesus. You and I were born objects of wrath, separated, alienated from God. But the requirement does not change. To be in this kingdom, to be a citizen, you must be born of a citizen. And what does Jesus say? Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. If you come to me and you put your trust and your faith in me, then you become a citizen of this great kingdom. It's a list of grace. And maybe you're asking, I'm with you. Why did you read those strange verses at the very end with all those numbers? Because it's another reminder of truth. If you want to understand what grace does, grace takes one who was far off and brings them in. But what you get is, well, you get two things. It tells you as a believer, it's not optional to be a member of a church. These names were written down to document, not their attendance, but to say they were involved. They understood God's grace and responded by joining and being a part of the covenant community. And that's the question that you and I have to wrestle with today. God has manifested his grace to us in Christ Jesus. But what do you do with grace? That's what verses 66 through 73 tell you. This is a, it's a list in which they gave to the work. And you recognize it wasn't some great economic time. This is what you would call a depression. And in the depression, the people of God gave. I'm not here to tell you about how much money you should give. That's not what I'm trying to talk about. It's a response to grace. When they see the grace and mercy of God, they are led to respond to it. And they responded by working and giving. Is that you? I'm not here just to ask, do you give financially? Do you give your time? Do you give of your talents, the the gifts that God has given you because you understand the grace of God manifested to you? Isn't that what Paul says? What does he say in 2 Corinthians? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Grace costs God his son. What's that grace worth to you? May we be a church that recognize that God is working and wants to repopulate his city. And it moves us to have a renewed vision, not just for our church, but for our city. And that it would lead us to be reminded of gospel truths that say we understand grace and therefore we work according to it. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. And that it is Your eternal plan to redeem a people. It is Your truth that guides us as Your people. And it grants to us a vision for the work and glory of God. And it is Your truth that reminds us of the gospel that without Christ we are far off. But in Christ, the grace and mercy of our God has been applied to us Through the power of your Spirit, it makes us rich. It makes us citizens. Help us to deal with you honestly this day as we would consider your verbal promise of making people your own through the work of Christ. And may even the visible picture of baptism remind us of that promise that in all things we would hope in Christ and live for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.